and welcome everyone to the weekly hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka with our regular weekly um, hoonster. Oh, a hoonster. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Not, I'm not sure if I like that word, but anyway, hmm. Peter Bale. Great to see you, Peter. Lovely to see you too, Bernard. And I'm, I deeply apologise for not 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 turning up last week. I mean, you you knew I wasn't turning up, but all of those. Dozens of people who expect to see me didn't uh, didn't realise that I wasn't. Oh, we missed you. Yeah, it we was a small you. errand. Uh, we we and there were lots of people asking, "Where's the where's the hoon? Where's, where's the incredibly handsome one?" Yeah, yeah, good. that's right. That's right. Well, I I was talking about you to someone today, and they said, "God, he's so sensible. He's always got the best things to say. You know, he just really really knows what he's what he's talking about." It's so reassuring to hear Bernard on the radio. Oh, and I thought, do you mean Bernard Hickey? Yeah, but they did. <laughs> yeah, they must. Um... Uh, they must they must have missed out the um, the memo about um, about the franticness that goes with yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it is wonderful to have you all back and a chance to reflect on a on a big week here and overseas. Um, Peter, if you don't mind, I'm keen to start off with my. Well, I know I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to ask, ask you to um, to Bernard. Uh, something happened this week. Uh, uh, well, a couple of things happened um, in Bowen Street in Wellington this week one of which uh, we're going to deal with and another which we might just laugh at, and um, but we will do com comedically, I hope. But one of them was the Reserve Bank increasing interest rates and warning perhaps even more aggressively than most other Reserve Banks have done, central banks have done, about a series of rises. Now, I'm not absolutely convinced, given where interest rates are now, that that's really going to put a cap on New Zealand house prices, given all of the other pressures on them. But Bernard, I believe you have some expertise in this matter. Yeah. That's what they've yeah. done. Well, um, we tend to forget that the Reserve Bank here is a long way ahead of the rest of the world. Mm. We sort of take it for granted. We're in our bubble now. We don't think about the rest of the world as much as perhaps we should. But the Reserve Bank I do. is... I think yeah, yeah, I know, else. exactly. Mm. And this is the good thing. And um, and the, the weekly hoon, we actually get to see what's happening in the rest of the world. But just for now, the Reserve Bank is moving ahead of the rest of the world, aggressively triggering the rate hikes to try and slow down the inflation. And we got a 0.25% increase in the official cash rate this week to 0.75. Now, that was what our economists expected. And there were yep. even some in the markets who thought they might go with a 50 basis point hike. We didn't go that far. But the Reserve They were Bank, just trying to win the draw at the Northern Club Economists. Yeah. economists um, exactly. There was chocolate fish on offer and they didn't mm. get it. Yeah. Uh, so the Reserve Bank has said, well, we've done 25, but we're going to do a lot more over the next couple of years, up to 2.6%. Mm. So we're talking here about... Now, why 2.6, Bernard? Is, it, is that because are they trying to sort of get to the... Do they have an inflation target the same way as the Bank of England does? Yeah. So is it right now, to them? you know, inflation at almost 5%, in, in theory, 6% mm. towards the beginning of the year. So that's way out of the, the range. Uh, and the Reserve Bank um, has the tool which allows it to speed up the economy, slow down the economy, and wants to slow it down a bit. Is it a tool or a lever? I, <laughs> or, and is the lever connected to the tool, as it were? It could be one of those buttons. Mm. In fact, in the Reserve Bank's um, uh, museum, they have a, a water machine with lots of pipes and levers and things, mm. which... Um, uh, Phillips, um, the famous New Zealand economist who invented the Phillips curve, actually invented for the Reserve Bank, and it was to do um, what? To it was a model of the economy. Wow! So essentially, you pour water on the top, and you pull a few levers here and there, and the water goes around and up and down, and and you could work out how much you could slow down the economy by 
working out how much you pulled the levers. So it was like an early version of a computer model Excellent. with water and pipes. Oh, I yeah. rather like that. It suits yeah, yeah. Wellington too. It yeah. does. It's a sort of yeah. Babbage, it's a sort of Babbage different, different, yeah, yeah. different but, calculator. But with tubes of PVC and the odd bit of barbed yeah. wire. So but just, what, tell me why, why, tell us, you know, why are, why, why is the Reserve Bank ahead when you say it's ahead? Because it does seem to be moving much, much, much faster than, than equivalent central, there are equivalent central banks than the major central banks. Why, why do you think we're ahead? Is it some, some, are we ahead in the Phillips curve? Yeah, well, the Reserve Bank would argue that our unemployment rate, 3.4%, is mm -hmm. quite a bit lower than the rest of the world's unemployment rates. And um, we also have the added burden, I suppose, of, of having no migration whatsoever to keep wages under control. Mm -hmm. And that's one of their concerns, that with no migrants coming in with their cheap wages, wage inflation is going to take off. But actually, I put into today's Dawn Chorus and did a, a podcast for the spinoff on whether wage inflation really will take off in New Zealand. Everyone assumes it will, but when you actually well, look at the numbers, it in a sense, it should. But yeah, will it? Why? Why would it? You know well, this I mean? is this is the thing. After forty years of Employment Contracts Act fear about being sacked or restructured or turned into a contractor. It, it, People are actually less confident about a wage increase than they've ever been, even though we've got the lowest unemployment in 30 years. And um, you're, you're an old Aucklander, Peter. You will I remember... Oh, well, I, what, what, you, when you say old, I'm a former Aucklander. Returned. Well, yeah, thank you very much. We'll have a listen. Well, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. The Mungary Bridge Industrial Dispute. Do you remember that? I vaguely, I vaguely do. Did, yeah, I, I, so the, one, 19... the one I particularly remember, which is not exactly relevant, but it's very funny to me to remember, of course, is, is the Leo Drongle hydroplane, hydrofoil. No. We used to have, well, so see, this is why I am, it is, I am old. Leo, Leo Drongle was a, an Auckland, an Auckland uh, businessman who had a fantastic hydrofoil bought from, I think, Naples uh, in Italy, which used to zoom out to Waiheke and Pakatoa Island when Pakatoa ah. Island was owned by the family that owned the Kerajodian. And uh, the unions, the evil, the evil unions, usually usually run in those days by the um, by various palms, uh, communist yeah, yeah. palms who'd come out. Sorry, sorry, any, yeah. sorry, Pommy sorry winges, to any communist palms. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, the it 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 stuck, got stuck for many many years on the water, on the autumn, Auckland waterfront and never really ran again. Anyway, back to the Mangaree Bridge. Well, back in 1978, the Mangaree Bridge, you know, the one that you you drive over to get I do. the under, the, the well, you used to drive, you can't drive over it now. It's got a bloody great hole in it. But oh, it is. No, no, this is the big one right next door. Oh, ah, yeah, okay. Yeah, Good. yes. That that that, um, that one was almost finished for two years, and then there was a strike in 1978. And by the time it got finished, it was two and a half years. It was the longest industrial dispute mm -hmm. ever in New Zealand's history. And back then, we had a very high union penetration in the private sector. But now, of course, everyone's a contractor. There's labour hire firms all over the place. And this is the thing that's a bit different, I think, is that mm. a lot of people think, well, you know, the preconditions for, for wage pressure may yeah. not be there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I include a couple of useful charts, I think, showing how uh, confident workers are about getting pay increases. And even though we've got this supposedly incredibly hot uh, labor market, most people are actually quite pessimistic about getting paid wage, mm. wage increases. Mm. Because we're so um, well, it'll be a lag, won't it? You know, yeah. there'll be inflation and there'll be a lag. I, I wonder, Bernard, if, the, if, for example, where we do have a lot of um, union influence, for example, in the nurses' association, you may get some significant wage pressure in some quite critical areas. You know, so you might not get it in the private sector so much, but but you know, you do have very effective unions 
representing the nurses, for example? Well, this is the thing that when you're right, the unions have gotten together in the public sector, but of course they're up against someone even bigger, which is the government. Mm. Mm. And we had the um, the government come out two or three months ago with this quite bizarre uh, wage freeze idea. And the numbers that are still being negotiated with the nurses and with the teachers are actually, you know, low single digit. Mm. We're talking three, four, 5%. We're not talking 10%. And that's the, the thing I think that a lot of the inflation predictors are not taking into account. Mm-hmm. But our labor market, the structure of it hasn't changed that much. And unlike in the States, where there's been a real drop in labor, labor force participation, i.e. people have basically given up looking for work because of COVID, they've retired. Mm-hmm. But in New Zealand, our participation rate's actually gone up. So Yeah, I was, I was thinking, actually, you know, because of course with the, with the, the, the unemployment rate is one thing, but there's, then there's the participation rate, and then there's also the sort of underemployment aspect, the, the people who would do more work if they could. And, and you know, it's, it's a bit more granular than we normally think. Yeah, there's about 300,000 people in New Zealand who say they want more work but mm. can't get it. Mm. So um, I think there is some, some room for uh, economic growth without necessarily uh, producing the inflation. And that's the big debate we're having all around the world right now. Is it transitory or not? I'm still in team transitory. And um, the debate really got fired up again uh, this week in Europe and the States where there's clearly signs of um, wage inflation and um, price inflation in the States, lots of jobs growth. But in Europe, with all these COVID... Um, yeah. Well, let, let, me just, waves, let me just talk about you know, a grey swan, as uh, Martin Sorrell from WPP uh, used, to, used to talk about, the grey swans. Which are which are kind of you know a mixture of a white swan and a, and a black swan. But a black swan is not is a complete surprise, and a, and a white swan is just blindingly obvious. But a grey swan is mm. a somewhat unexpected development. So one could imagine that there are anti-inflationary forces, such as uh, a new variant of COVID emerging ah, in yes. South Africa. Yes. So caution on this whole push on inflation is very much required, including things like the uh, price of price of uh, fuel in the United States. You know, I, I know you're 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 very positive about inflation. Uh, you know, in in the sense that you're not you're not expecting it actually to to be as critical as many of the incredibly highly paid economists that we know um, are. <laughs> yeah, well, this is this is the thing. For the last ten years, I've been the guy on the outside saying, "Hang on a minute, I don't think the inflation is really going to take off." And there's been three or four of these inflation scares. Now, this is the biggest. But every time there's been an inflation scare and the central bank puts up interest rates, about six, 12 months later, they have to go, ah, oh, we've got to take, yeah, they're yeah, not oh, no, it didn't yeah. come. Oh, I have to put them back down again. Yeah. And um, so I just, I just think that the factories are still there. The work platforms like TaskRabbit, they're still there. Mm. Uber's still there. Uh, all of those migrants would still love to come to New Zealand. And once we get into an election year, Labour will let them in. Where, where and, do we stand, Bernard? With, sorry, forgive me just one minute, just because because the, the migrant thing is so interesting. Uh, and, and a friend of ours, Dilipa Fonseca, has done some really wonderful yeah. work on that migrant community that's still here. And whenever I see courier jobs, uh, all sorts of other service jobs like that, I believe, or I go in an Uber, which is rare at the moment, but I believe or I perceive that those jobs are still often often carried out by people on temporary work visas. Where, right. where are we with that with that sort of extension of those temporary work visas, and where might we go? Do you think? Well, the people who already have work visas are now able to apply for permanent residency, so that's a real uh, concession, if you like. But it doesn't actually increase the number of people in New Zealand doing that mm-hmm. work. But what I think, um, but it gives has, those people some security at least. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's a good thing, and it took the government way too long to do it. 
But what I think um, uh, we're going to see over the next six to 12 months is the pressure growing so intensely on the government to allow more uh, migrants in with mm. work visas. Mm. Um, one of the big problems will be actually that um, the usual sources, which are China, the Philippines, in India are amongst the worst affected or, yes, absolutely. or are, in China's case, shut down completely. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I interviewed, um, you may have seen my excellent piece interviewed mm. last week in Business Desk with, uh, when I say excellent, it's a self-declared excellent, <laughs> uh, with the Duncan McFarlane, the chief executive of Endovin, oh, yeah. the, the little-known contract winemaker which just bought Villa Maria. And he was very interesting on the topic of the um, agricultural workers that come in from Vanuatu and the Torres Strait Islands and so on. Um, and they're really critical. You know, they're absolutely critical, not so much this year for the harvest, but because the harvest is heavily automated, but they're deeply critical for the um, pruning. winter pruning. Mm. And there is an absolutely critical problem, or big problem last year with, um, you know, quite a significant acreage in, in Marlborough that wasn't properly pruned. Not his, of course, because his were all, you know, tuned and pruned, but, um, you know, significant acreages that aren't getting pruned or weren't pruned that year because of because of COVID. Previous year, the workers were still here, or previous winter. So I think that's a really interesting issue for, and, and his company has just bought a, a labor services company called Thornhill, which does both mm -hmm. apples and uh, fruit and various other forms of, um, of uh, agriculture, uh, plus the wine industry. And I think it's going to be a very, very interesting on dilemma, yeah. just a, a dilemma and follow-on effect to be solved. Mm -hmm. So, but just back to back to something you do know what, uh, something about rather than wine and um, apples. So, housing. What does the oh, what yes. does the increase to zero point seven five percent base rate mean for housing? Well, a lot of the the impact of rising interest rates has already been passed through in in a much to a much greater extent. So. The official cash rate's only up 0.5%. But because of expectations of higher interest rates further out, the wholesale markets have already pushed up those longer-term mm. interest rates, like two, three, four, five-year rates, by about one and a half to two and a half percent, depending on which length you're looking at. So in a way, a lot of the messages have already been sent to the housing market that mortgage rates are going to rise one and a half to two percent. Yep. Now, for a lot of people, it doesn't affect them immediately because they're on a fixed rate, but about 60% of the mortgage book is going to roll off in the next year and have to roll off to higher interest rates. But I actually think the bigger impact on the housing market is going to come not so much from the interest rate side, but for from the lending um, criteria side that the banks operate. So it's not so much a price signal, mm -hmm. it's a changing the conditions signal. And I wrote this week about a mini credit crunch that has uh, is starting to flow through. In the last two mm -hmm. or three weeks, we've heard from mortgage brokers that banks are essentially cancelling a lot of their um, contracts with the brokers, or well, some some of the supply. But, yeah, yeah. So they they're tightening up the criteria for particularly low deposit mortgages. So these mortgages, where you've got you need um, less than a twenty percent deposit, so more than eighty percent loan to value mm -hmm. ratio. They're the ones that the Reserve Bank are restricting, and, and that really kicked in from November the 1st. And now the banks are scrambling to make sure they get in under the wire and that their books are in a healthy shape for the Reserve Bank to have a look at. Mm. And secondly, and this is almost an accidental effect, uh, on December the 1st, the new Credit Contracts and Consumer Finance Act comes into, into force. And so the banks are looking at this piece of legislation and going, ah, 
this tells me that I have to make sure everyone can afford the loan I'm about to give them. Well, uh, okay, well, I'm going to have to do a proper check here. I'm going to have to ask, you know, how much do you spend yeah. on which has to be Which has to be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. No, essentially it's ensuring that people are not um, lumbered with unaffordable loans. Mm. And to be fair to the banks, they have been more cautious on this uh, independently in the last six months or so. And they all have always had what they, what they call these interest rate serviceability mm -hmm. floor tests. So this is where, yes, the mortgage rate is 2.5%. What Americans might call prime and subprime and sub-subprime. Yeah, yeah. A bit like that. And essentially the bank says, okay, now we could lend you $2 million, uh, if you were pushed to the limit on 2.5% mortgage rate, but we know that interest rates probably go up. So what we're going to do, do when we make you the, the loan is make sure you can handle a 6% mortgage rate when mm -hmm. we do our calculations. And they, that 6% serviceability floor has been there for quite a while. And whenever the banks change that floor... Is that, is that, but is that floor just a sort of uh, agreement between the banks? Not that they're operating anything like a cartel, although we will deal with a cartel later on. Mm, but yeah. is that really in an informal level or, it's or in, is it... It's informal. But this mm -hmm. week, the Reserve Bank came out and said hey, maybe we should make this an actual formal direction to have a floor. Is, isn't that an opportunity, Bernard, for smaller lenders or different lenders or non-bank uh, lenders to step into that market? I, you know, yeah. so, I mean, I was wondering, for example, about Heartland. I don't, I don't know whether, I don't know much about Heartland, but you know, it seems to be one of the few innovative financial finance houses in New Zealand. Yeah, might it, you know, might there be specialist more. mortgage ones that come in? Yeah, there's a few others, SBS, mm. um, the, uh, the old PSIS co-op uh, mm -hmm. money and a few others, that, but they're not very big and they haven't really provided a lot of competition for the big banks. The Reserve Bank worries about these um, non-bank operators coming in. And there was quite a bit of this that went on pre-2008 with the finance companies, mm. but they all collapsed in a bloody big heap. Yeah, but that very that seldom harms consumers. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, you know, it's quite difficult for someone to come in and compete aggressively with the banks. You need a lot of capital, you need you need systems. and you need But there a is a lack of innovation in New Zealand finance, isn't there? That's though? true. I mean, we've seen this with, with sharesies, uh, how it's how it's done so well in the in the equities market, which is a really, you know, big boys club uh, other than other than through sharesies and we've got stake and the others in there now. But that's been a real innovation. And I just I just don't see that in credit cards and things. But of course, it is only a market of just over five million people. So, yeah. And ah. um, it's so dominated by the big banks mm. and they they push all of their loss leading, you know, discounting effort into the mortgage market, which is where the big volume is and actually where the profits are. So it's quite hard to get in there and compete with those yeah, yeah. big four. And there's been a couple of attempts, but essentially to compete in mortgages in New Zealand, because we don't have a uh, an independent wholesale market like in the States with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac effectively providing mm -hmm. guarantees so that you can essentially... Have ah, a much maybe wider... we should. If we've got a, if we've now got an ACC for unemployment, maybe we need an ACC for mortgage. Well, there have been various with an interventionist about... with an interventionist Labour government that is completely out of control from or under yeah. not subject to control from the opposition. Maybe they could do that. Yeah. Well, in America, I mean, you, you've lived mm -hmm. in America I where have. people take out these thirty-year mortgages and mm -hmm. then they refinance them, and that's only possible. Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Because Freddie Mac and, Fra and Freddie Mac are standing behind it effectively provide a government yeah. guarantee for all those loans. And uh, we don't have that here. And mortgages are also idea. tax deductible there as well, which is <laughs> extremely helpful. Um, Bernard, so the question everybody's answering, particularly David Appleyard, is, is this going to put a cap on house price rises? No, 
is the short answer because um, it this hasn't changed expectations and this is a market about expectations. So one of the reasons people aren't selling their houses, that there are so few listings, is that people don't want to miss out on the next 20% mm. rise in house prices. And we've had a couple of these, you know, um, people crying fire in a crowded theater, house prices are gonna fall. Mm. And, you know, I put my hand up. I was one of those who thought house prices would and should fall 30% back in 2008. They didn't because the central bank- Which presumably, and- which presumably um, coincided with one of your uh, attempts to actually buy some property. <laughs> No, it wasn't quite that well organized. Quite that much, right? no, no. Yeah, um, but um, but essentially, the central bank and the government intervened to to essentially protect that market, and that's the um, that's the thing now. Everyone's worked this out. This is a guaranteed market. It is a market that the Reserve Bank now sees as too big to fail. That the government won't let fall because they need to get elected, and to do that, you need. Um, uh, homeowners to to love you. Yep. And the idea of a 10, 20% fall in house prices scares the living daylights out of everyone, even though it shouldn't, because it only takes house prices down to where they were in, in okay. um, one last, November two, last year. Two last, two last housing questions before we sure. move on to another uh, political area, and we'll try and find an elegant segue to do it. But I thought one of the interesting aspects in this whole gazumping type thing and the, the people trying to trying to you know get get the next 20% of any any rise was the very effective reporting by RNZ, I thought, on the um, uh, builders and de- developers uh, using sunset clause as clause in their pre-build, you know, pre-sold uh, property developments to get rid of people who've bought in at a lower level. Yeah, yeah. Which was a bit mean, it seemed to me, the very, you know, not just mean, it seemed to be to be bastardry, really, if not piracy. Yeah. And the other one, Bernard, is the problem with um, building materials, which seems to be, you know, quite extraordinary at the moment. You know, the inability to get a good good piece of um, two before and some and some uh, James Hardy um, melt 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 the moment it finds water uh, wallboard. Yeah, if only we could um, find lots of blow up houses. Mm. You know, <laughs> like you can get blow up kayaks and ride yeah. on. But, but seriously, what, what what about those two issues? Because they they yeah. they too indicate one indicates an extremely hot. Well, they both indicate a hot market. But um, you know the very the, the, the critica- criticality of the supply of materials is quite an interesting problem. Yeah, um, you get you get a lot of noise about that, and you're right. Building materials prices are up seven or eight percent. But when you look at materials prices as a as a proportion of a house cost, mm. it's not as much as you expect. A mm. lot of it's in the labour costs, a lot of it's in the land costs, and then the consenting costs on top of that. None of which are, are changed by those building materials costs. And actually, uh, I did a, a, a good interview a couple of weeks ago with um, the head of NZ Living and Sam Stubbs from Simplicity, in which they basically said, yeah, building materials prices are up a little bit, but not enough to cause a you know, 50%, mm-hmm. 30%, 40% rise in house prices, which are often blamed on building materials costs. Because the real chunk of the cost of building a new house is firstly the land, and then it's the consenting and labor costs it's not necessarily the building materials costs and secondly you, you mentioned the um uh the sunset clauses and the that just fuels the frenzy now you've yes, got a whole bunch yes. of first home buyers going yeah, oh, plunged back into so, the absolute yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. it just means people i think go, we need heavy government re- regulation of that don't we don't we need to have a few, need? few of those people stuck on you know hanging from lampposts <laughs> <That's right. laughs> like, like uh, heads on pikes no mm-hmm. yeah um 
No, actually what's needed is a complete breaking of expectations in very much the same way that we did in the 80s and early 90s with inflation. When we all wanted to get away from this 10, 20% consumer price inflation that um, uh, Rob Muldoon imposed on us. And the way to do it was to create an independent central bank that was tasked with getting inflation to 2%. And the, it said, we said to Don Brash, who yep. was running the Reserve Bank, you can crunch the economy and make us unemployed. Just get rid of this damn inflation. Mm -hmm. And we all agree to do it. Both parties will set the law. We'll have an independent central bank and an inflation target. And away you go. We're not going to stop you as politicians. What I'd love to see is a bipartisan agreement to set a target for house price affordability, which essentially tells all the investors and all the buyers. Excellent. So we're not going to tolerate... Uh, any more inflation. In fact, we're going to force through a 30, 40, 50% fall in house yeah. prices. There's my, there's my segue, Bernard. Yes. It's going to be quite difficult to get any further bipartisan agreement when the um, National Party immolates ah, itself. That is so we, we are not work. going to, we're not going to just turn this all into, all into you know, New Zealand political work because there's so much out there. We can't necessarily add you know, huge value on it. I certainly can't, but you possibly can. And I, 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 one of the things I think we've discussed before is that I rather like the way that um, Judith Collins finds it's absolutely impossible to not uh, reveal her true self. And that action at sort of 9, 9.30, uh, you know, to just pour a litre of fuel over her own head and put a match to it was absolutely extraordinary. Or, or believing at the same time that by, by doing it, she was actually immolating Sorry, this is a very, uh, very bad metaphor now. But, it's, a, um, it's a fiery story. It yeah, is a fiery emulating story. Uh, um, uh, Simon Bridges. And there's a fabulous Sharon, Sharon Murdoch cartoon on Stuff Today of the two of them fighting and scrapping and pulling their hair while Jacinda drives through the red lights on the other side <laughs> of the road, meaning, of That's course, good. this whole, you know, they, they, as you know, you even had silly old Trevor Mallard criticising Labour for being a bit too aggressive. But why wouldn't you when... The National Party are fighting like cats in a sack. So tell, yeah. tell us how that, you know, well, how that I, immolation cats in a sack metaphor is going down. Yeah. Well, as a, if I was ever a cartoonist, and I'm, I'm hopeless at it, but I like to think about these images, hmm. I would have seen uh, Judith Collins as one of those kamikaze pilots winding the scarf on hmm. and drinking the sake before jumping in the plane and yeah. sending the email at 9.30. Yeah, the, trouble, on... the trouble with that is that you absolutely know that she would have pulled out, you know, she would not pull, that she would have pulled out after dropping her bomb on the battleship. She wouldn't, you know, she doesn't want to go down as well. well. This I mean, she thing. did, that's the effect of it, but I don't, yeah. I, this, this idea that she was very much prepared to take them both down. I mean, she just, even if she had to exit, she was going to do it explosively and certainly take him down. Yeah. Well, the questions and the answers um, of her as she left Parliament yesterday suggested <clears throat> she was pretty happy <laughs> mm. <laughs> that she was relieved it was all over. And um, she may not have inflicted enough damage on Simon Bridges to stop him getting the role, but certainly put a few more doubts in people's minds yeah. and it made a hell of a piece. And, and, Is, and isn't she, her endorsement of um, Luxon no a kiss of death for him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Thanks, Judith. Yeah. <laughs> and and Luxon may well go for it. Uh, my view, though, is that um, he doesn't have Key's political gifts. He's only got one year's experience in Parliament. Key had four years before he got the mm. job. Key got the job when it was clear that he was the main person to get it and had a real chance of winning. Whereas um, Luxon, it's no short Do, thing. Doesn't he him. also have some uh, interesting fundamentalist, Christian fundamentalist yeah. views? And his voting record is, um, 
pretty conservative. Yeah. 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 No, this is the problem for him, is that John Key uh, really did a good job of bridging the divide in the National Party between the socially conservative and the economically liberal. And the way he did it uh, was to be quite economically liberal uh, and then to keep everyone happy enough to reach across the divide to do the occasionally socially liberal thing. And the best example of that is 2007, when he shocked everyone by joining up with Helen Clark to um, push through the anti-smacking legislation because mm. it became a cause celebre for the sort of conservative Christian right. And that's a problem for Christopher Lux. Who are excellent at smacking. Yes. Strong believers yeah. in smacking. Yeah, right. Jesus would have smacked you. God yep. made me do it. Um, so uh, Christopher Luxon has an issue there in that he can't easily reach across the divide no, and do he... those sort of socially liberal things to try and appeal to the middle of the electorate. And, but I don't um, think the middle of the electorate is there and has those views either. No, that's that's, the that's thing. because they're in the middle because they're nice people. Exactly. That's less. because the median voter, you're right, is not on the fringes. And this is the problem for all... Um, mainstream parties in, in democracies, where you have a gerrymandered electorate, where you need to convince the party that you're good enough to be elected, rather than the voters, what you end up with is a very extreme set of candidates. Yeah. Yeah. This is what you have in America. Yeah, yeah. You have this well, can, crazy... I just, can I just, so yeah. just segue slightly again? I've got two segues coming up. You're not even going to know which way you're pointing. Do you know where the word gerrymander comes from? Is it Northern Ireland? No, no. It is a it is a uh, it is a uh, portmanteau word invented by a newspaper because a person promoting in the United States promoting um, gerrymand what became known as gerrymandered uh, borders was called Jerry, and one of the most outrageous uh, uh, electoral boundaries looked like a salamander when you looked looked like <laughs> it. So a gerrymander is a combination is a portmanteau word of uh, Jerry, the, I forget the, the person, the senator who was, who was congressman who was pushing it, uh, and, a, and a salamander, which makes it, to me, even more creative. Um, now, Bernard, I have a theory about this as a you know, newly returned New Zealander, which is that uh, Shane Retty, oh, I'm, sorry, I'm terribly sorry. Dr. Shane. Dr. Shane Retty, as yeah, he was yeah, yeah. always referred to by uh, Judith Collins, is actually a really interesting potential candidate and what he strikes me as is the John Major candidate who snuck out of the cabinet in when Margaret Thatcher was deposed. He had a toothache so that he didn't have to vote against her, literally, uh, which was, you know, but he amazingly came back, bounced back very, very quickly. And he was an extremely interesting character, not entirely unlike Shane Retty, calm, somewhat unusual background for a, for a British Tory. He was working class. Uh, had, had also been the, tr the, the treasurer and had been a very effective, the chancellor mm. rather, had also been a very effective chancellor. And I, I just wonder whether, uh, and this is going to be a double double segue here, he's the, he's the anti-Barry Soper, anti-just, you know, he, so in the same way that Barry Soper's political antics no longer work with Jacinda Ardern because Jacinda Ardern is so brilliant at deflecting it mm. and yelling like a loon in the in the Beehive press conference uh, and challenging the Prime Minister, as I did as a um, stripling 20 and 21-year-old, much now to my embarrassment. Uh, and Who Barry did you still, have a go at? Muldoon? Uh, Muldoon and Longy. Yeah, oh. yeah, you know, they, they fucking, they hated, excuse me, <laughs> they hated whoever oh. this impertinent See, Muldoon would have, like, was. bludgeoned you with his fists and well, no, no, Longy would have just skewered you. 
Yeah, so I was there that night when the when the you know the what was it called the um the snatch election. snatch election yeah I was, really? there, I was there standing in the you know oh. I was only about eleven standing holding probably holding Barry's um you know extended microphone but I don't think Barry's approach works with Jacinda Ardern no. but I also think where I'm getting to here is that somebody like Shane Retty who is thought through intelligent. Uh, and not a sort of divine, I don't believe that there are wedges that can be pushed, which is why Judith Collins has failed. And it's possibly why Simon Bridges has failed. Please, please, would somebody more experienced, i.e. you, tell me what you think there. Yeah, I mean, Shane Reddy, you're right, is one of those sensible, um, middle of the road, uh, not offensive, clearly authentic uh, people who sort of... Sounds pretty um, bloody good to me. Yeah, he sort of, um, achieved, like, for example, the last two or three weeks, he actually just didn't go to parliament. He no, went, he went, up, up, to he went his... up and stuck, stuck things in people's arms. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. And, and because of that, he had an authority and uh, uh, an on-the-groundness that actually made him much more effective in criticising the government mm. on the, the other person, Bernard, that I'm going to... So, um, so I, I had did I did read today that he's not terribly effective in Parliament and he's may he may not be terribly effective on media, but I'm not sure that people thought that Jacinda was going to be either. This other person that is very interesting is that national person. Is it Jessica Ellis? Um, oh, I think I think you're talking there about um, uh, Nicola Ellis. N uh, Nic Nicola Willis. Nicola and, Willis. Yes, also, I, um, I was immensely impressed Stanford. watching her on News Hub Nation recently. Mm. where she owned it, partly because Labour didn't put anybody up, but she was very effective. Mm. Yeah, no, there are some um, quite good sort of liberal part of the of liberal wing national MPs who have been very effective in the last um, couple of months in putting the government on the spot, have come up with policy ideas. Chris Bishop. And I was going to say, Chris Nicole. Bishop hasn't come across as a total plonker either. No, he's no. In, he I seems mean, to Chris, be very effective. Chris could be a wild card in all this. If um, Christopher Luxon chooses to wait and, or doesn't just win the confidence of the caucus, then I think either it's Simon Bridges, who's pretty aggressive and um, thinks it's his turn again, uh, but uh, Chris Bishop, I think, could be the guy who comes through the middle. He, he could be more like the, uh, the major the John Major mm. character. Mm -hmm. Shane Ritty, I, I think you're, you're right. There's a few people in the party who don't think he, he has the sort of mung role, if you like, or the, or the, um, uh, the rapier uh, quickness to really thrive on that mm. parliament floor or in a, an election debate on TV. Um, but he is, he is believable and authentic. And, you know, Shane Ritty, he would be, uh, you know, uh, um, the first national Māori prime minister that I can think of. Oh, Holyoke. Holyoke was Māori, wasn't he? Is that right? No, I'm, I'm, sure kidding. I'm, that. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, Dara suggests we should look at Erica Stanford. Ah, yes. Erica Stanford you know has done a fantastic job in highlighting the plight of migrants stranded mm -hmm. here, but also New Zealanders stranded offshore. And she and Nicola Willis and Chris Bishop have been a... Uh, a pretty effective threesome um, operating. Oh, excuse me, would you just retract? No, that, I, yeah, yeah, la, la. yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't want to. No, no, idle jokes about how to have um, yes, girl yes. children as well. Oh, no, I still wanted to find out trouble. what on earth that old wife's tale really is, especially yeah. since I have one and you have two. Yeah, now, yeah, I have two daughters. Now, Bernard, are we going to? Do you want? Do you want to actually commit to who you think will be chosen by the by the caucus? 
No, I have no idea. And um, it's either going to be Chris Luxon or um, Simon Bridges uh, with with uh, Chris Bishop as a wild card. But um, you could be very right that someone wild from left field comes through the middle, like Shane Retty, who um, manages to avoid being attached to the to the to either camp. This is the great thing about these. All right, I'm going things. to suggest Shane Retty for leader with Nicola Willis as deputy. Oh, good. Uh, and um, Inspector Plum with the iron bar in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. So Bernard, I, well, feel, I feel if, we if have to we apologize. Had an iron bar in that caucus. Yeah, uh, I feel as though we have to apologize to the 86 people who have very kindly listened to us because we've devoted it all to stuff that's all been on New Zealand, except for the all fantastic stuff about housing. But were, were there any no, other war stories about, about um, your confrontations with um, Judith uh, Collins oh, yeah. or mine with Muldoon in 1873? Yeah, 1873. Well, the, the basic reason that Judith Collins wasn't acceptable to her own caucus, let alone the public of New Zealand, is that um, uh, we saw what, she was like when she was a cabinet minister in the previous national government. And for me, the, the moment when I realized I, I uh, didn't see her as a likely prime minister is when I read some of the conversation she had online with a guy called Cameron Slater. Mm. Was, and, he's a lovely chap, isn't he? Uh, mm, yeah. You know, he's a physical, physical fitness freak. You know, mm. he certainly wouldn't speak ill of anybody either. No, no, I wouldn't speak ill of him either. Um, but uh, the conversations that have been reported that uh, show that she is a um, the person, the sort of person that would be difficult for a <laughs> lot of people to support. Yeah. And that was the truth. That's um, when she came out of her shell in the last week of the election campaign and um, showed her true self because she thought that was the way to go. Um, we, a lot of people looked at that and go, hmm, okay, I'd prefer not to have that. And so um, that was always a problem for her. Her net un unfavorability ratings were absolutely You mean just that she's absolutely ghastly and not, and not afraid to show well, it? Abs absolutely unpopular yeah. is the way I would describe it. Hmm. And, no, uh, I, would, I would say that her inherent ghastliness, which I admire and love, makes her inherently unpopular. Yeah. She's yeah. sort of a fun... She is a really interesting character. Yeah, yeah. But um, I just know yeah, what she, you know, don't talk to me about Samoa. Don't disrespect <laughs> Samoa. Now, shall we move on? Speaking of Samoa, shall we move on to the Pacific oh, briefly? The because Pacific. there's a story Very brewing keen. in the Pacific yeah. that I bullied you into including in our thing Good. today. Yeah. Because I think we need to, um, I think we need to consider it. And because also there's a China angle to it. So the capital of the Solomon Islands, Honiara, is currently on fire. Chinatown is down to a half dozen buildings. Uh, and it would appear, based on tweets that I've seen from relatively reliable people from, um, uh, from Honiara, that the Prime Minister's house is on fire. Mm -hmm. And the Prime Minister, this group is trying to get rid of the Prime Minister. Now, what interests me about it, and I don't know nearly enough about it, but I have just talked before I came on air with you to Michael Field, uh -huh. uh, who is an expert on the South Pacific and, uh, and I worked with many years ago. And he says there is a genuine China story to this. The uh, Malaita, this uh, province of the Solomon Islands, which is uh, a short boat ride from Honiara, um, voted very strongly against the uh, 2019 decision to shift recognition from Taiwan to ah. China. 
And uh, so Malaita has, this, the group of people in Malaita have a uh, uh, objection to the China versus Taiwan problem. The only building in the area that appears not to, that is unscathed at the moment is uh, a Taiwanese representative office in Honiara. Um, and so I think there is something really interesting going on here uh, that you're starting to get some interesting domestic and potentially international little, little fiery bits come up. It is coming, happening in New Caledonia. Uh, it may happen in, in other places where you've got this contested ground now between, between Ch China. And it's very interesting that the Australians are sending in both troops and yeah. Australian uh, federal police today to try and calm this. Um, China's been very, very, very quiet about it, although I have noticed a couple of people on Twitter talking about colour revolutions and so on, which is their code Yikes. for um, revolutions that need to be suppressed very, very, very quickly. By yeah, no, China so is, I think that's um, a really interesting question. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. And it was interesting to see Anne-Marie Brady um, picking up on it as well. Uh, and this follows on from quite an interesting story around Kiribati in the mm. last um, couple opening of weeks. Up the, opening up the, uh, the, the protected area. Yeah. 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 So there's essentially a backlash going on inside some of these Pacific countries against what is seen as an overbearing Chinese influence and also a corrupting Chinese there's, influence. There's, there's that. And then there's also the extent to which China is actually physically present there. And how could it yeah. stir up a little bit of friction when it needed to as well? Although, yeah, of course, the Chinese Communist Party never interferes in the activities of any other country. No. Uh, because they're not did, imperialist bastards. No, <laughs> they're not. You might have seen how influential they are when Jamie Dimon, the CEO yes. of JP Morgan. What a bloody idiot. <laughs> so he turns anyway, out, Okay, so just let's, you, 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 tell him what he's, whatever, yeah. you tell everybody what he said because so, he was a bloody idiot. Yeah, so last week, the you know, you could argue the most powerful CEO in the world. JP Morgan um, CEO, Jamie Dimon, he's been around for decades, captain of the universe type guy, uh, goes to a college, you know, one of these things where you wear a silly commencement, hat. A commencement speech. Commencement yeah. speech. And then you tell the world how to do things um, because you're special. And he came out and said, um, you know, JP Morgan's one of the great institutions. So it's been around for 100 years. Oh, just as long as the Chinese Communist Party. But we'll be around for longer than yeah. then. And I think JP Morgan has some investments in China, doesn't he? You know, well, he, yeah. he did work that out after the backlash. I mean, what a bloody idiot. I mean, it's a stupid, stupid, gratuitous thing right. to say, yeah. especially at a time when, you know, Chinese executives are being hauled off and disappeared. Well, I'm not. And just, you, know, just, you just don't need to do that kind no, of. It is no, just no. a stupid provocation. No, it's not a. It's not a grown-up thing to say. No. And um, he he grovelled afterwards with a, a statement saying, you know, I apologise. You can never grovel thing. enough, though. This no. is the thing. It's you know the grovelling. We, we these these um the levels of grovel, grovelling that required are just are just off the scale. So shall we discuss that other two two other Chinese stories yes, that please. I think are really interesting? And I don't mean to tell, to obsess about China because there's some other doozies we've got today just to bring in another word. So um, very, very interesting story in the Financial Times, Neuro News, and a couple mm -hmm. of others this week, particularly in freight magazines and freight uh, you know websites and so on. Thousands upon thousands of Chinese ships turning off their, their uh, tracking transponders when they're in Chinese waters. And the issue here is that, you know, all of those signals, if you're a container ship or, you know, 5,000 container ships going into uh, the various, the seven largest ports in the world, I think, are, are down the uh, eastern seaboard of China, um, that can be incredibly important for allowing you to protect, predict logistical deliveries, to project, you know, people like uh, Dubai ports 
um, and the you know Long Beach port and all and, and American logistics companies really need that data and value that data to work out congestion when things are arriving. All of the supply chain and China has realised this and decided that it's a national security risk. So they've got all of the ships coming, or many, many of the ships, about 80% of the ships now going into the Chinese ports are turning off their transponders so that they cannot be tracked. And so nobody knows where they are and where they're going and what they're doing. It's a very interesting uh, addition to the whole range of things that we've talked about quite a bit, which is the attempts to clamp down on the amount of data publicly available about China, about Chinese individuals, all sorts of, it's like a sort of, the, the party is just putting its arm around Chinese data and rethinking where it wants it to be, where, where access can be. And I, and I don't mean to conflate the two issues of individual data, which is where Didi Chusing, the, um, uh, the, the Uber of China, got caught recently. Um, you know, but you're seeing some really extraordinary steps to limit access to information, to reclassify data uh, in, a, in a way that has a huge knock-on effect. Yes, and this is some really interesting sort of geopolitical tech carve up of the world um, story. Uh, data is the new mm. oil. We've got to control those underlying networks for data and own it as a communist party. And it, what I find fascinating too is the understanding that GPS satellites now are now a crucial part of how the world works yes so for example you know everyone who's just ordered something online as you say can now track it pretty much mm -hmm. anywhere in the world and one of the most interesting uh, points of contention um, geopolitically in the south pacific now is where china has set up its beidou mm. satellite receivers now these are these for its for its alternative its alternative to GPS yeah exactly so the GPS was obviously the American military in the 60s setting up to help them send ICBMs to Russia hmm. and China within a and meter within a meter or so or within that now within I think um, um, about 30 centimeters yeah yeah and in fact the one that we all use in our phones is the old one that the hmm. military didn't need anymore. But the Chinese understanding just how important that network of GPS uh, um, was have put up their own one, a special one, the Beidou one, which was, of course, a key thing in the hypersonic missile track mm. that goes around. Absolutely. Which around are, are, you, are, you doing, are you attempting to do a little hand? Yeah. Hand right. over on the. On the yeah, yeah, on yeah. The so it's this very, there was a very interesting story this week about it, the, the Chinese network that the number of base, number of stations for that that are, that are in the Pacific and in Asia and in Africa. It is an extreme, very, very mm. quickly and extremely well deployed service. Of course, the UK is going to have its own global satellite service. Having left Brexit, they realised that they were then going to get thrown out of the um, European uh, equivalent of GPS. So, you know, there'll be there'll be somebody with a flag. Uh, to, um, uh, signals? That. But the, 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 the just going, we, we've discussed this before, the hypersonic uh, missile mm. test that the Financial Times very, very cleverly and effectively uh, uncovered, uh, which is this, this this use of a long march rocket to put up a hypersonic missile, which travelled uh, more or less around the world, past the South South Pole, which is critical because if they're going to attack America at some point, all of the American defences are pointing north. Um, but the critical new factor, which the FT also revealed uh, this week, along with the Wall Street Journal, was that as it was just before it 
landed on its target, or you know, as somebody pointed out to me, it was 27 miles from its target, but in a sense that didn't really matter. It released a secondary missile from mm. itself while traveling at uh, five times the speed of sound. And that apparently is a, is a, uh, a sort of physics, it defies some of the rules of physics. And I think that is going to be you know, really interesting. But just to add a little set, little twist to that, uh, Al Jazeera, which is in that, and it's, and it's in that thing I posted earlier from, from my spin-off uh, column, or collection of stories, we do have to be careful about being driven into a uh, false competition with China that may not really exist. You know, they, they, they are aiming to have a thousand um, warheads, nuclear warheads. The United States has something like four and a half thousand. Um, but this hypersonic thing is a fascinating technology. And it's also, of course, being used atmospherically for these hypersonic weapons um, or terrestrially rather, for the hypersonic weapons against shipping. So it's a really interesting area to look at, but we do have to be slightly careful that it doesn't get overhyped into a kind of... Um, nuclear... Uh, um, well, yeah, and, and, yeah. A, and an excuse for the um, military-industrial complex in the United States to spend even more and, and commit us to... Yeah destructive things just not you know in case there's any socialist listening technology Unlikely rules the world and and just a, f a final one before we jump into the questions on technology big news this week uh in the you know ganging up on those poor tech companies yeah poor tech companies uh, <laughs> uh the new zealand news media have gotten together all seven of them and uh have asked the commerce commission for permission to gang up or yeah, well, I think to... I think that, so. There's a couple of so so. so uh, forgive me. You, you finish finish the time. So they've asked permission that, um, through the uh, through the News Publishers Association right. to do it, effectively to do collective bargaining, which they would never allow themselves mm. to do with their own trade unions, but collective bargaining with Google and Facebook. Yeah, through the Commerce and, Commission. And there's a precedent here in that the Australian government has allowed the Australian news organisations, in particular News Corporation and Fairfax to get together to try and come up with well, deals. That's not entirely, so the critical difference in that, and I think this is going to where it's going to be. So I totally agree with the idea of these people being able to negotiate collectively. What the Australians mm. did was bring in, was, was effectively mandate that it happen through a competition commission report into media and into, into social media, which suggested that there was this deficit in power. I don't think that that's what the NPA is asking for, and I see no sign from the from Chris Farfoy and the New Zealand government that it is going to do anything like uh, force a kind of um, agreement. But I absolutely can see the Commerce Commission allowing it in this case mm. because because the so the, the competitive power between Facebook and Google is so uh, immense that it, you know why why shouldn't you know I think in this case the publishers should allow be allowed to act in a cartelish fashion although it was very interesting that our friends and colleagues at business desk uh, have so far not not so much chosen not to join it I think that's slightly incorrect what they have chosen to do is join Google Google Sh showcase which is a uh, Google product where Google will pay you know a reasonable amount I'm sure for uh, for, for, for the different display what Google will not pay for nor Facebook and nor do they have to in, under Australia, is for the content that the publishers themselves allow to be shared on their own pages. They will not. They will never pay for that because it's just a. It's a. Um, they have no control of it. They have no control of the way it's presented. Um, you know. I think you know that I'm a skeptic about uh, the, the mm. to some extent about the value of news on social media anyway. Um, and Google would, Google argues very convincingly that uh, it produces so much traffic for um, newspaper websites, news websites that um, 
you know, that's the much more effective direction to go down. I, I think also both companies, Facebook and Google, do a lot and can do a lot more to promote the subscriptions of the um, news mm. of their of their news media partners. But I think it's a really interesting, really interesting step. But yeah, I just I don't see the government actually stepping into this at all. Um, and so I think this will be a, a sort of sideline for the for the Commerce Commission to deal with, which I, I don't see any any reason for them not to not to no, grant it no. this time. In, in this case, I mean, the Commerce Commission did block NZME's attempt to merge with stuff. And one of the reasons that was put forward for that merger is so that the the new vehicle could have greater market mm. power to negotiate with the likes of Absolutely. Google. No, no, but, it, but even so, the market power is so gigantic that they have and the percent. I, I, it also wouldn't surprise me that, you know, uh, we, we've just seen Google go back into Spain, having Google's, Google pulled Google News out of Spain a few years ago when Spain tried something similar and, it, mm -hmm. so, and they've just put it back in again because they've been able to reach uh, a sensible agreement with Spanish publishers. Um, what, New, what the New Zealand publishers are doing is comparable, I would say, to what the French publishers did, which, um, you know, nobody minds people in France getting together to, um, you know, form agreements and cartels. Uh, but, uh, you know, they came up with a really effective agreement with Google, which was nowhere near what, um, you know, people had expected financially, but seems that everybody can live with it. I yeah, suspect that's these, where it's going to go. Yeah, it's one of these sign of the time stories where, we're increasingly realizing that economies and companies are reaching some sort of equivalent status in some yes. in some way. No, these are countries. That, these are, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're all basically countries in, in themselves. They've certainly got the economic power of it. Um, Google and Facebook together have greater annual sales than New Zealand's GDP. And as we realize the power of these large companies to dominate markets and to shift prices and wages, uh, increasingly anti-monopoly uh, competitors are trying to think of ways of controlling that power. And often that means allowing others who don't have as much power to get together. To yeah, try yeah absolutely. No, and it's, so it's, it becomes it a makes... bit like commercial gunboat diplomacy, essentially. Yeah, and the Competition Commission it. has to recognise that, I think. Yeah. yeah. Just, and, to, just to, be, to be clear as well, uh, as I've said before, I have been until recently advising um, stuff on various things for the past year. So I have uh, um, some experience in this and I have also quite close relationships with Google and I have worked for Facebook uh, as a consultant. So I just want to be very clear about that, I, that I'm both aware of it all, but I'm kind of aware of the machinations. It's, it's yeah. also important to recognize that stuff has neighborly. Um, so it has, it has, you know, it has a couple of um, dogs in this fight, uh, you know, beyond, beyond just wanting to get good value, good value for news content. It's, it's also notable that stuff put COVID-related uh, content back onto Facebook to, fill, to help fill a void of accurate information on Facebook. Yeah, and that was, that was really helpful. Uh, and I think Facebook and Google have, try, have, have been trying to do the right thing with improving the quality of the information that's getting out onto networks. Um, I have a slightly more hardline view than you, I think, Peter, on, you do. on controlling this misinformation. You do. Um, I, I'm sort of sympathetic with the, the Chinese um, angle on this. Uh, and I think it's going to be one of the great tests of the next 10 or 20 years is how uh, democracies organize themselves to contest the power of these global tech companies. And one of the most interesting ideas I've seen in the last um, couple of weeks that's developing around the inflation debate is that one of the reasons we have an inflation problem is, is that now there are many companies in the world 
who have the market power to force through price increases. Mm, mm. So the theory is in economics that no company is bigger than the market and it has to compete with everyone. And eventually, but if they are the market, they can. Exactly. Mm. And um, monopolies uh, are quite good at creating inflation. Now, no one's suggesting that, um, you know, Facebook's out there increasing their price of advertising or whatever. But certainly um, there's been some really interesting research on the wage front at how some of the large companies, Amazon, for example, is able to essentially change the weather of wages in a certain part of the country simply because they employ so many people yeah. and have the power to say no. So and shall we open up to questions? Yes, now, please, because yeah. I, when we were going to discuss the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in the United States, which is another bonkers Second Amendment thing plus justice, uh, as well as the Ahmed Arbery trial. We can do that in response to questions if anybody wants us to. Please go ahead. Please throw your questions. I'm just looking to see if, we've, if there's any questions that we've... Um, there's some in the Q&A box, Bernard. Yes, I'm just having a look. Um, Does all the noise about the C triple CFA show that perhaps banks weren't doing the best checks in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a bit more sympathetic to the banks than some might think on this because... For the last two or three years, they have been quite aggressive on testing everyone to see that they can handle a 6 or 7% interest rate. They have lowered that floor a bit in the last couple of years, and I think the Reserve Bank have jumped in there to make sure mm -hmm. that they don't lower it anymore, and also to give themselves an extra tool. You know, if, if you can't put up the official cash rate, maybe you can put up the serviceability test floor, and that, that helps... Um, uh, tighten the market without having to punish all those people who have um, floating commercial interest rates. And Bernard, um, David Appleyard is talking there about a joint framework for, prop for property ownership as well. Yeah, yeah. Is that like, uh, is that like, just, do you think that's, is that like parents, you know, taking it, taking equ equity stake in their uh, kids' no, houses? There has been or or is it, is it government and private, government and private yeah, ownership often, combined? Often, um, uh, I suppose you could call them uh, worker-owned cooperatives, but in this case, it's house-owned house cooperatives. So there's housing co-ops, which are actually quite mm -hmm. an established and old thing in the rest yeah. of the world, but here yeah. we don't tend to do them. And there have been various moves afoot, particularly with a lot of these medium-density buildings, these sort of 20, 30 apartment blocks where it's too expensive for one person to do it. But if you get together in a cooperative, you, you can do it. It's a really good, you know, that's for it because there are absolutely, I mean, there's a, there's a huge history, of, of course, in the UK of housing cooperatives and in the United States. And also in the UK, you've had that tradition of philanthropists, um, particularly the Quaker philanthropists building, if not entire towns, then certainly suburbs, um, which have turned out to be, you know, a very effective way to provide very, very high quality public housing. Yeah, and that's one of the things where the government could do a lot more to help the community housing groups. Um, I've advocated, and others have too, for um, a government guarantee for financing for these things to make sure that um, these community organisations and some of these cooperatives can get the big chunk of money they need to get the developments underway because the banks aren't interested in doing much of that. Um, vaccine certificates. There's a question about vaccine certificates. I mean, that's been one of the big stories this week is that it was finally uh, launched. I got mine eventually, it took me about an hour, a couple of hours of um, frantic um, resetting of passwords and mm. doing two level. Well, let me, let me just tell you one thing because that, that it might actually be useful to everybody on the thing. So if you're using either Real Me or My Health, uh, the, the, the health one, do not use a joint email address that a boomer might have. I mean, I could not understand why anybody would have a joint email address with their wives or partners, but people do. 
uh, and often that's people's only uh, address and that will mess them up straight away. Yeah, yeah. Um, fix that up. I, I, I sat with a relative of mine the other day. Yes, oh. my a different brother for the one who asked me about my life, and uh, set up his Gmail, set up a new Gmail address for him, set up a new Gmail address for his wife, and then um, then that was tickety-boo. Although they did have phones that were, um, you know, basically Nokia 2210s from 1873. Um, but for, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the vaccine certificate, I think the case that they're talking about, and, and I do sort of understand this, is um, if you're a hairdresser and you have a regular customer and you know who they are, and you shouldn't necessarily have to confront them with a, a, a need to sign in. On the other hand, of course, we do get them to sign in with the vaccine certificate. I've got, I downloaded also the, um, you can now download not only your own vaccine certificate, but you can download the reader for other people's vaccine certificates. Yeah. So you could have Lynn standing at the door of your house, not declining to let anybody in ah. unless unless they've been checked, which I'm going to do. So we're not going yeah, anywhere no, that comes to my that's house. That's clever. I mean, you know, there's there's quite a few people who knock on the door that you want to go away. That's one way to do it. Just wave yeah. this in their face. Yeah. And the the anonymous person also now asks about Kaingora and housing and whether they might pursue developments like Nightingale, which I'll have a look at, I, I imagine, as a, some sort of collector thing. Yeah, Kyangora is a really interesting group to me because they talk about themselves as a business. You know, when you talk to Kyangora people, they say, we're in, we're in the housing business. Um, obviously, they're in the, in the infirmary, they're in the housing business of having some quite difficult tenants. But um, do they have the capacity to innovate, Bernard? Um, they are trying and they certainly want to do a lot more building of um, green, you know, uh, yep. uh, houses, houses that are not just um, boxes, but actually places to live with, you know, proper community facilities and um, play areas and gardens and that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. they are getting better at it and they're certainly gearing up, but they've, they've basically been the state house complex in New Zealand um, has been essentially in sell-down mode for 30 yeah. years. Yeah, well, they, make, now they, have they to... make really nice houses and some great parts that, you know, I'd love one in Iraqi or Greyland. Thank you. Well, yeah, yeah. And this is the thing. There's been an awful lot of people who've bought them over the years and made an awful lot of money mm. out of them rather than the state. Um, I think they're getting better, but it's good to see Nightingale in there. Um, they're an interesting bunch. They've actually just built a quite nice-looking uh, block in Wellington near where I oh, live. Oh, really? And and they've been very um, effective in Australia, building lots of these medium density, high quality homes that are aimed at the more affordable end of the market. Interesting, which is great. Yeah, the, and, the one that the one that that's, that's referred to on that website is is a is a, um, a, a development apparently aimed particularly at Aboriginal people in a particular group. Am I right in thinking, Bernard, that Kyangora? Uh, sorry, that, that, that uh, iwi groups or marae groups also have their own housing projects in many cases around, is that correct? Not, not with Kaingora necessarily, but, um, uh, you know, with, but with, uh, just by iwi, by iwi initiative themselves, Maori housing cooperatives, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, Do they exist? Yep, yeah, and there's a lot of money that's been uh, pumped into them, um, Papa Kainga, but um, one of the problems is that a lot of them struggle to get funding from banks to build these developments because there is no clear title for individuals, which is how banks operate when they lend to landowners. They want to know exactly who the landowner is so they can put a big chunky pipe into their bank account and ensure they always get repaid. So um, iwi organizations are a struggle for the banks. And this is an interesting problem for... Mm. 
the government and for iwi is how do they make sure that they can finance because there's actually a lot of land that could be built on yeah and a real opportunity to you know solve some of the housing crisis by getting a lot more houses built specifically for iwi and um at the moment uh there's a financing problem which needs to be dealt with actually the iwi themselves are starting to think about how to mobilize some of their own funding remember yeah well there's, uh, there, well, there's terrific i mean many of them have got terrific capital bases now oh yeah and a lot of money basically just sitting mm. in bank term mm. deposit accounts so this is this is an opportunity and i hope that um it gets developed and i hope the reserve bank actually starts taking some uh notice of what's going on here and helping through their capital adequacy and capital lending rules helping the banks uh, maybe we need a get... sort of kaka meets grand design uh, blog oh, or Substack Bernard to, to to bring some of these ideas, no, genuinely, to bring some mm. of these ideas yeah. to the fore about how it can be done in imaginative and creative ways. Because there are, you know, there are some great examples of historic, I mean, public housing in, in New Zealand and innovative housing and around the, not just in New Zealand, but around the world. That would be, I think that would be a very, I think we've just found a new um, TV opportunity for you to walk around like Kevin McLeod <laughs> looking at grand housing designs. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah. Oh, someone wants us to look at passive housing. I, I, I think for New Zealand, we should probably look at passive aggressive housing, actually. <laughs> that'd be a real, that'd be a New Zealand style. Right. Yeah. Shall we, we, we do the skateboarding dog story? Oh, yes, please. Just to, just to end up. It's, it's, more of a, it's more of a thing of beauty than... So does anybody got any other questions there? Poor old Jonathan Suckling, whose mortgage is going about to explode through the roof. Um, anybody got any other questions before we go? Or before I tell you the ridiculous skateboarding dog story. And I will share it with you because it's a lovely one. Go go for it with the skateboarding so This is dog. a story about the death of uh, everybody's least favourite, or most people's, many people's, least favourite punctuation, which is the semicolon. And apparently the, uh, semi the use of the semicolon has fallen by 25% over the last 30 years. And apparently, there must be a stats department for word usage. Well, that's right. That's correct. That's correct. Um, it's it's dropped by seventy percent between eighteen hundred and two thousand. Uh, and George Orwell described semicolons as an unnecessary stop. And Kurt Vonnegut said, "All they do is show you've been to college." Now, <laughs> what I'd like to say is that uh, is that gosh, Mr. Anderson, that's very rude of you. I, we're not going to have that kind of thing here. Yes, Dreyer's English is bloody good. Thank you. It is yes, really but, good. But so the semicolon. So I, I admit to using Grammarly, which is a down, very clever downloadable software, oh, yeah. because yeah. like many people, uh, I am not as good as I should be at punctuation. And I have, and as a journalist, I have found that the best way to sub-edit other people's cop copy is to read it aloud, which can make you seem like a mad person in the office. But it does help you find where the comments naturally, naturally fall. And a semicolon, I've become increasingly interested in where you're effectively making different arguments and different, almost like a list. And that's exactly what they were created for in 1490, in 1494 oh. by the printer, by the Renaissance scholar and printer, Aldus Pius Minutius. Um, and, who, he, and he first introduced them in a book about climbing Mount Etna. And the uh, semicolon was introduced as a hybrid between a comma and a colon. And we'll have no more rudeness. Thank you on these on our show, ah, please. Well, as Lynn pointed out in the comments stream, the kaka is doing its very best to reintroduce the semicolon into the world because most of the dawn choruses these days have at least seven or eight semicolons. Exactly. I think it's a really yeah. good. But but I am so 
one I think New Zealand schools, they may do it now, but they certainly didn't do it when I did it, need to do a much better job of grammar because otherwise I'd be a much more successful journalist than I am if I was better at grammar. <laughs> my daughter is constantly criticising my, um, my use. Although the other day I read a story by a New Zealand journalist I know who works for The Guardian, and even I could tell how bad it was from, <laughs> with its columns. It made it almost incomprehensible. It was a good story made virtually incomprehensible through bad punctuation. So there's hope for us all. Yeah, there is. Hey, um, thank you very much to everyone. It's been a wonderful um, hour of wobbling around the world. Um, yeah, two old white men things. talking bollocks. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, that's quite good. That's that's another definition of the weekly whom, two old white men talking bollocks. Yeah, and I do apologise for lacking a fucker papa to make it more legitimate. But anyway, we have a... We have a we have a we have a fucker papa with each other at least, Bernard. Yes, indeed. Um, so have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you very much, Peter. That has been the weekly hoon on the kaka. Kakita.